You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Over the past group of weeks, we've been going through Psalm 112, and we've been talking about this idea of having unshakable character and what it means to become enthusiastic for God's ways in a world that wants its own way. And we've been working through this particular psalm one verse at a time. And it's been, I think, I've I've really enjoyed being able to spend our time looking at it this way. And today we're going to be in verse 7 of Psalm 112. And among the things that we're told here in this psalm and in this verse in particular is that we don't need to be afraid of bad news. And this particular psalm illustrates why. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire psalm as I've done each week. We're going to highlight verse 7 today, and we're just going to talk about why we as believers in Christ don't need to be afraid of bad news. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me. Psalm 112. And this is what it says, starting with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. And then this is the verse we're highlighting today. In verse 7 it says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word together today. We're grateful, Lord, for this psalm. We're grateful for the things that you convey to our hearts in it. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us in the midst of a world that discourages character. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be men and women who exhibit godly character in the midst of our our public moments, our private moments, every moment that we live on the face of this earth. And Lord, we know that without your strength, that's not even possible. But with your strength, it certainly is possible. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that you'd refine us. We pray that you'd transform us. We pray that you'd strengthen us. And as we look at your word together today, we pray that you'd just give, give us insight from it as we submit ourselves over to you by the power of your spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my least favorite things to experience, and I'm probably not alone in, in saying this, but one of my least favorite things to experience in life is unnecessary drama. And maybe you feel the same way. Um, but have you ever stopped to consider where the drama in your life is coming from? You ever thought about that? You ever give it kind of a, a, a moment of analysis? I know during, during certain seasons of life, I have to confess that I was the source of drama 
for others, and I can remember causing my parents a considerable amount of stress during a particular rebellious streak during my youth. You could also remember seasons of conflict as an adult that were heightened by the way I chose to respond to them. A lot of times we can't control what's happening to us, but we can certainly control how we respond to the things happening to us. And I can think of some moments that if I'm transparent, if I'm honest, I contributed to the drama. At present, when I, I look at um, the majority of the drama in my life, sometimes it seems to be coming from outside experiences and uh, relationships, but even still, um, you know, I, my hands aren't clean on that. <laughs> I, I, I wish that they were, you know. We all create some drama somewhere. In my life, I've experienced things like cultural drama, personal drama, relationship drama, family drama, even church drama. And when I'm in the midst of my own personal pity party, do you ever give yourself permission to have one of those, by the way? They're great, aren't they? You know, sometimes for a moment, you just allow yourself to have just your own personal pity party. Sometimes I've lamented to myself, and I think, you know, why can't everyone just calm down? Like, why can't people just calm down? Is it really necessary to get people worked up like this? Or do these issues need to keep being dumped at my feet? Stop making your drama my drama, right? And then when I'm finished whining to myself, I laugh and I remember that I am not as innocent as I like to tell myself I am in the midst of those pity parties. Because we're all either creating drama or receiving drama, and we're dealing with it in one respect or another because we are imperfect people in the midst of a world that deals with all kinds of struggles, and it's just one of those things that's part of life. Sometimes we create it, sometimes we receive it. Years ago, I remember a friend of mine describing the sick feeling he would get every time he drove to church. Now, of all places, you think, boy, that's, that's sad that he'd get like a sick feeling in his stomach every time he drove to church. But he told me, he said, his church was in serious decline. His church was experiencing a high degree of conflict during that season. And he said every time he arrived at the church property, he'd get an upset stomach as he waited to discover, and, and the way he phrased it was, what shoe was going to drop that week. It's like, I'd pull up and just kind of wait, what shoe's going to drop that week? Now, eventually, things turned around at his church, and he confessed to me, that it took a while, but eventually he started to feel an internal reaction to that change where he was able to kind of enjoy the process of worshiping together with other believers again. But I remember going through a season that that felt rather similar to that, just in another sphere. Years ago, I remember going through a series of trials that had come close together. Now, sometimes in our life, we go through trials that are spread apart. And so you have a little bit of recoup time in between them. But I remember going through a particular season where several trials happened, one right after another, and if I'm honest with you, I remember just feeling completely exhausted, and as some of the problems were beginning to resolve, and I could see that things were kind of coming back together, I actually started worrying about what new surprises might be coming next, because I felt like my my guard was up. It's like, oh no, it seems like it's quiet, but that's right when another thing happens, right? And I let it consume me, and I let it to rob my joy when a better solution was right there, right in front of my face the entire time. I didn't need to worry. I was choosing to worry, but I didn't need to worry. What I needed to do was I needed to practice trusting the Lord for the things that I could not yet see, just as I was able to trust Him for the things that I could see. And I mention that because when you look at the verse we're highlighting, verse 7 from Psalm 112, 
I believe that the writer of this psalm had that, that idea in mind as he was writing this passage. In that passage, we're told this. It says, and I'll just bring it up for us to just be able to look at. But the, the writer of the psalm says, he is not afraid of bad news. Just think of that. That's only half the verse, but just think about that statement. Can, can we say that of ourselves? It says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So what the psalmist here seems to be indicating is the fact that a person of unshakable character doesn't need to spend their life fearing what may or may not happen next. That doesn't need to be what consumes their thinking. That doesn't need to be what consumes their life. Yes, there will be difficult and unexpected trials that all of us experience, but there will also be delightful moments over the course of our lives. And here's the thing. Most of the things that we worry about never take place anyway. I actually saw a study some years ago that analyzed the things that people worry about and how likely those things actually were to occur in their life. And the study essentially said less than 10% of the things that we actually worry about are even remotely likely to come true. And of that 10%, only 1% ever seem on average to come true. So essentially it was saying 99% of the things that you and I worry about aren't even remotely likely to take place. But when certain trials do come our way, what does Scripture reveal to us? Scripture reveals to us that the Lord gives us His strength to actually be able to handle the things that actually do occur. Now, have you ever wondered, if you thought of this maybe even in terms of percentages, kind of like that study, but have you ever wondered how much of our lives are being spent allowing our minds to dwell on future problems that are not even going to happen? things that are not in God's plan for your life and His sovereign will, things that that literally are just not going to happen, and yet we allow these things to consume our thinking, and we allow these things to consume our attention. It makes me wonder, how much of our life is actually being spent, how many of our waking hours are actually being spent worrying about things or dwelling on things that aren't even going to happen? I would suspect it's a considerable amount. Now, I've only lived my life. I haven't lived your life. But I know if I'm honest with you, I've spent far... I don't even consider myself an overly anxious person. I think I'm just probably average in the anxious category. But when I look at at almost anything I've ever chosen to be anxious about, almost all of it proved to be a complete waste of time. Now, if you're a parent, I would imagine... And by the way, how about this? Just think about this. In the past few weeks, there have been three babies born in the church. Just in the past few weeks... This was, a, this was a very good month as far as, like, the church population is uh, concerned. So, church families, thank you guys so much. Uh, we really appreciate that. Um, but, no, it's exciting to see, and I even just think, you know, as a parent, um, you know, you've probably spent countless hours wondering about what-if scenarios regarding your children's lives, haven't you? And, by the way, when do those what-if scenarios tend to consume our thinking? If you're, if you're like most people, it's usually right before you go to bed, or maybe in one of your other quiet moments if you have a drive alone by yourself. But for a lot of people, it's actually right before they go to bed that they end up thinking about some of those what-if scenarios related to their kids or or something else. And I, and I, I think to myself, how much more productive could those moments have been if we just use those moments to do things like read Scripture? Or if we use those moments, instead of just dwelling in our anxieties, that we just prayed about these things or, or journaled some of the many blessings that God has already shared with us instead of allowing our minds to circle all the way through and back and forth with 
anxious thoughts that aren't even highly likely to take place. When you read through Scripture, there are big themes that carry all throughout the Bible, whether you're reading the earliest pages of Genesis or the last pages of the book of Revelation, and you start to realize that there's, there's some major themes there and certain things that the Lord desires to see from your life and my life. And one of the major lessons that the Lord wants you to understand in this life and wants me to understand in this life is to just learn to trust Him. That's what He wants from us. He wants us to learn to trust Him. So no matter what our circumstances may be, we're called to remain confident that our lives and our futures are held securely in His hand. Over and over and over, Scripture illustrates, illustrates that with stories. It illustrates that in, in poetry. It illustrates that in moments of direct teaching. Jesus, when He came to this earth repeatedly said things to indicate that to us. And I think, you know, just being very frank about how we interact with God, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for us to tell the Lord in one breath that we love Him, and then in the next breath to basically say with the actions of our lives or the attitude of our mind that we don't believe that He's orchestrating a plan regarding the lives of those that He's blessing and regarding the, the lives of those that he's sustaining by his powerful word. So to say, Lord, I love you, but I don't really trust that you're orchestrating a good plan for my life. I don't really trust that you've got my life securely held in your hand. I don't really trust that, that all things really do work out for the good of those who love you. It doesn't make sense to say, I love you, Lord, and then really spend our lives just consumed with that other kind of mindset. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture's made it very clear to us that we've been graced with His peace. And He wants us to utilize that peace in moments when we feel strong and in moments when we feel weak and when we feel worried. Uh, Just consider for a second what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27. He made an interesting statement. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now, if you just kind of rested on a verse for a while, don't you think this would do our hearts a lot of good to just kind of keep coming back to John 14, 27 and really thinking about some of the implications of what Jesus was saying? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He's saying, I give this to you as a gift. And I don't give this like the world gives it. You know, when you think about the gifts that the world gives, the world gives us things that are so conditional in nature. The world gives us things that we have in one moment, and then they get taken away in the next moment. And Jesus said, I don't give you peace like that. The kind of peace I offer is different from how, in the way it's given and in how it operates. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This would be a good piece of uh, Scripture. I have a few things in my house. I have to consider this as I'm even saying this to you. But I have a few things in my house where I just have a portion of Scripture in a highly visible place, either in a picture frame or a stencil on the wall or or something like that. This seems like something that should go up somewhere. I'm going to have to keep that in mind, even for my own home, because I love what Christ says there. And when you look at this world and when you think about how this world operates, this world does not understand real peace. This world doesn't get it. This world does not understand that statement that Jesus made, nor does it understand what Jesus is offering us. Because when this, world, when this world offers peace, when it thinks about even the concept of peace, what it's talking about is, is something that's rather circumstantial. And 
when you ask this world what peace is, it usually will give you an answer. If you ask most people in this world, they'll usually give you an answer that peace is something that's tied to the absence of conflict. That's usually what the answer will, will be. But when you look at what Jesus offers, when you think about what he's talking about here, the peace that Jesus offers, it transcends conflict. It transcends our circumstance. His peace puts our minds and our hearts at rest no matter what we're presently going through. Now, I'm sure that if we went around this room right now, we could list a variety of of actually painful trials, the type of things that maybe some of you are going through right now. In fact, I happen to know some of your stories, and and some of you know my story, and, and we know the things that we're dealing with, right? And then you look at what Christ says here and what he offers, and he reminds us that his peace puts our hearts and our minds at rest. His peace allows us to remain confident in him, even when our circumstances seem out of whack. We remain confident in him. His peace allows us to just take a deep breath, look at everything going around us and say, all right, you know what, this circumstance might seem messy right now, but it's all going to resolve. And when I look back at this thing from the perspective of eternity, I'm actually going to be extremely grateful for every element of it. It's painful in the moment, but it's profitable in the long term. The kind of peace that Jesus offers us, as he's talking about that in in John chapter 14, the kind of peace that he offers us is a peace that allows us us to know that no detail of our life has been overlooked. There's no detail of your life that's being overlooked by your creator. And it reminds me of, and I, I wonder if this came to mind for any of you, even as we're thinking about this idea of no detail being overlooked by our Creator. When I actually think about that, it actually reminds me of something that's mentioned in Proverbs 31. Now, Proverbs 31 is a portion of Scripture that many people are familiar with. It's one of the better known chapters in Scripture because it really gives us a description of a virtuous woman. And it's, you know, when I read that chapter, I. I'm grateful for my wife because I, I, I look at her and I say, all right, this is the woman that the Lord's blessed me with. And when I think about my sons marrying someday, I think, all right, Lord, I hope that you'll bless them with uh, you know, uh, the privilege to marry a woman like this. So when I think about the, the, the women that my daughters become, I pray, Lord, please make them women like this. And when it describes that woman, that virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, when you look at verse 21, it tells us something about her. It makes a statement. It says, she is not afraid for her household when it, when it snows, it should say. She's not afraid for her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. She's not afraid for her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. The virtuous woman in that passage, when you look at all the details that it gives us about her, it shows that she's someone who paid attention to the details. She looked after her family. She uh, even treated people that worked with her and for her well and took care of their needs. She was prepared. She was thinking about things. She was, you know, even when it came for bad, you know, time for bad weather, she was prepared for bad weather or other issues that might arise. So there was no need to spend a whole lot of time worrying because she was prepared. She had made preparation. And in her preparation, she was thinking about details that had a high degree of effect on the quality of life of the people that she loved. And I look at something like that and I think, all right, 
Are we prepared for the unexpected in the way that the woman of Proverbs chapter 31 happened to be? And I think, what, I think part of what Christ is trying to help us understand when you look at His words and when you think about a passage like that is that ultimately He is our preparation. Christ is our preparation. If we have Him, we have everything that we ultimately need. We can trust Him to pay attention to the details. We can trust Him to guide us through unfamiliar waters because there's no detail of the journey that He's taking us on that's been overlooked. He sees all of it. He foreknew it. He's got it all planned out, and He's bringing your life and my life on a journey, on a path, and He's teaching us to trust Him in the midst of the things that we're experiencing. And that's a good way to go through life, trusting that the Lord has the details figured out. I think it's easier for us to trust that God has the big picture figured out than it is to actually accept the fact that he also has the details that contribute to the big picture figured out. I think sometimes for me personally, it's been a little bit easier to think that the Lord loves the world when I think of this in a general sense, the people of the world, than to sometimes focus on the fact that he loves me specifically as well. I think it's sometimes easy for me to even read prophecy in Scripture and see the different things that the Lord's got planned for how He's going to resolve all the details of of everything that creation is going through, but then sometimes overlook the fact that the details of my life are also part of that overall plan. He's got the big picture figured out. He's also got the details figured out. And He's reminding me and He's reminding you time and time again as we go throughout Scripture that He is our preparation that ultimately, if we have him, we have exactly what we need. But in case we need contrast, Scripture also gives us another perspective to consider. And I think it's a contrast that reinforces the value of going through life trusting the Lord, because God shows us multiple examples of people who actually chose the opposite of that. God's Word shows us multiple examples of people that chose to go their own way, or people who chose to trust their own wisdom instead of trusting the Lord, who is wisdom personified. And I think one example of the failure to trust the Lord was a a man named King Belshazzar, who actually served as the last king of ancient Babylon. And Scripture tells us that Belshazzar was son of King Nebuchadnezzar, and while he reigned, he just lived it up. You know, he inherited the kingdom from his father, very powerful, very wealthy. You know, when you look at Belshazzar and you kind of, you kind of just see what was handed to him, he kind of strikes me as somebody that was just really, really full of himself. He thought he was the biggest deal in the world. He was somebody who really liked to show off the things that he had. He liked to show off his riches. One of the things scripture indicates about him is that he was someone who loved to just throw opulent and irreverent parties, and I think he just wanted the attention of, of those that he thought were a big deal in his kingdom. And, and um, we're even told that at one of these parties, he took the gold and the silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem years earlier, and Belshazzar encouraged his nobles to drink wine from them, to get drunk, and then to praise their false gods. So they had these these objects, these golden vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And can you imagine those things being used as dinnerware in this irreverent party? And I think Scripture kind of, for the sake of being polite, holds back on some of the details of 
some of the things that were probably taking place at that party. But, ne- but uh, Belshazzar was just encouraging his nobles, the scripture tells us. It's like, just, just live it up, you know. Fill, fill the goblets up, fill, you know, fill this chalice up, get drunk from it, praise your false gods. And we're also told in scripture that while throwing one of his parties, Belshazzar got the shock of his life. And he vividly displayed what it looks like to fear bad news. You know, our theme, our idea today is this idea that the the person of of character, the righteous man or woman, doesn't need to be afraid of bad news. But when I think of a picture of what it looks like to fear bad news, Belshazzar comes to my mind. And look at what it tells us in Daniel chapter 5. When you read verses 5 and 6, it says, so this is at that party. He's throwing a party, you know, he and his nobles, they're all getting drunk, using these vessels from the temple of the Lord, just filled with pride, filled with arrogance. And it says, at that party, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So you just picture this taking place as Belshazzar is watching this hand writing and scratching into that plaster. And you notice the way Scripture describes Belshazzar's response. The normal, healthy color leaves his face. He's consumed with worry and fear. Scripture indicates that he becomes physically weak and that he starts shaking. His knees start shaking together because he's so fearful. And later on, we're told that, that uh, Daniel was summoned to interpret the writing on the wall. Why is, you know, what does this mean? What's this all about? And Belshazzar was informed that because of his arrogance, because of his idolatry, and because of his failure to trust the true and living God, his kingdom was going to be taken away from him. So this opulent party, this arrogant man, this person who thinks he's got the whole world in his hands... He's told that the kingdom's going to be taken away from him and that his life is going to come to an end. And in fact, we're told that very night Belshazzar was killed and his kingdom was given to Darius the Mede. Now, when our lives are examined, who do we want to resemble? A person who trusts in themselves or a person who trusts in the Lord? So do we want to be someone who resembles that virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 who pays attention to the details, doesn't worry about the future, ultimately puts the Lord first in her life? Or do we want to be like the man of Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar, who ultimately trusts in in himself? And I think if our desire is to be a man or a woman who, who isn't afraid of the future because our trust in the Lord is secure, I want to encourage us to just think about a few ways that that confidence in the Lord can be lived out at present. Let me show you something else that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, he said, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Which of us, by being anxious, can add a single hour to our span of life? What was Jesus trying to reveal to us about this idea of trusting the Lord, about not worrying about bad news, about not fearing for the future? He's trying to tell us that anxious thinking and anxious living is not productive. It doesn't produce a good crop or a good fruit. It doesn't have a good result. It's not productive at all. It doesn't add to your quality of life, and it certainly doesn't reflect 
a heart that trusts the Lord. So what we're encouraged by Jesus to understand is don't let, don't let anxiety dominate our mind. Scripture is encouraging us all throughout it to trust Him. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but many people will admit that their most anxious thoughts come at night when they're trying to calm down and get some rest. I think that's true for me. It's probably true for, for some others here. And recently, my wife and I were, were making some do you ever just go through a season where you just decide to make a whole bunch of updates to your house? Not because you have to, just because you just get in that mood and you're like, while I'm in the mood, I'm just going to make some updates. And so right now, we, uh, our son, who's really good at woodworking, just made some nice wainscoting for us in our dining room. He's going to be putting up some crown molding this week. If you live locally, hire him. He does a great job. He has no time to give to you, uh, but he starts college on Thursday, so... I don't know how that's going to work, but he does good work. Um, So we did that, and a few months ago, my wife and I were like, you know what, we haven't really freshened up the the guest room in a while. Maybe we ought to just like, you know, we've lived in this house for 14 years. I think that room needs some updated paint, new comforter. We'll get some new stuff for the the windows, a new shade. Let's just make this a little nicer. And we thought, you know what, let's just make this the kind of room that if someone, you know, friends or family come over and they, they, they stay at our house as a guest, we just wanted it to be the place where, where someone could just relax. We even got a nice chair for the room. You know, we're like, just so that they could just take a load off and relax and find rest. And, uh, you know, we, we got a new frame for the bed and stuff like that. A whole bunch of things. Painted it really relaxing colors on the walls and, and all that. And we were trying to think, all right, what do we want to put over the bed? It's a unique space to try and fill with a picture. We're like, we, we didn't have something in the house already that we felt kind of fit that spot. We didn't have anything on the wall. And so we found something. And I mention it because it very well fits with this whole concept of not worrying about bad news. And it even fits with the fact that so many of us kind of dwell on some bad news right when we're trying to go to sleep. But we found this, it was perfect. It, it's, it fits exactly perfect above the bed. And it's just this framed, stenciled phrase that simply says this. Give it to God and go to sleep. My, my heart needs... I'm going to stay in the guest room. It's going to create conflict in our marriage because I'm just going to want to see that before I go to bed. Give it to God and go... Or I could just buy two of them. I understand, all right? But I love the phrase, give it to God and go to sleep. And I like to just throw my name in there. You know, give it to God, John. And go to sleep. And when I look at it, I think, yeah... That's really good advice. Just give it to God and go to sleep. Don't stay up all night worrying. Find rest in Jesus. That's what you need. Sometimes I wonder, I was recently watching um, a few, I went on this kick where I was watching a bunch of biographies about Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, sometimes I wonder how world leaders handle their responsibilities. You know, we think about the things that we're responsible for and things that could certainly tempt us to lose some sleep and think, all right, well, how do world leaders handle these things? And, and you know, when they're knowing that their decisions are not going to just impact a small group of people, but you can make a decision. If you're in a position like Eisenhower was, he was our 34th president. He was also a five-star general during World War II. Decisions that guy made impacted the lives of millions of people and not just millions of people during his life, but millions of people long after his life. There are decisions he made that impact you and I now, and he's been deceased for decades. And I wonder, how do people like that handle their responsibilities? How do people like that go to sleep? And 
At one point, Eisenhower was giving a speech, and he actually quoted, he didn't name the guy, so no one knows who he was quoting when he said it, but he, he named a, an unnamed university president in his speech. And, uh, and he said this, and I think I, have, I think I have a slide for it here. Yeah, he says, I have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. The urgent are not important, and the important are never urgent. Just think about that statement for a second. He said, I've got two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. The urgent are not important, and the important are never urgent. And he was basically saying, it's just a matter of taking care of what you need to take care of in the moment instead of stewing over it or procrastinating. It's a matter of being proactive and doing what you can today, but not worrying about doing what you can tomorrow because you're not even living in that moment at that point. And I think in a practical way, that mindset could be useful. It could certainly help reduce anxiety. I don't know if you ever heard the name Sir William Osler. He's another one. He had an interesting quote about this. I read it in a book a few years ago. But he, made a, he, he advised people to live in what he called day-tight compartments. So day-tight compartments. So like if you're living in today, live in today. And his advice was don't stew about the futures. He said just live each day until bedtime. Don't stew about the future. He's not saying don't think about the future. I very much think about the future. But he's saying don't stew about the future. Just live each day until bedtime. Do you ever hear the name Dale Carnegie? Do you know the name Dale Carnegie? Some people like his stuff. Some people don't like his stuff. I remember when I was being mentored by a pastor when I was in college. He said to me, he had a Dale Carnegie book that he wanted me to read. And I was like, Dale Carnegie, that sounds like pop psychology. Why do you want me to read this? And he said, well, tell me if you think it still sounds like pop psychology after you read it. So I read a Dale Carnegie book. Dale Carnegie, famous author, wrote a bunch of books, famous business trainer. There's still groups that do his business training uh, today. But he suggested that if you're overwhelmed with anxiety, and if it's even affecting your ability to concentrate, he said, how about this? Try these four things. This is Dale Carnegie's suggestion. If you're really wrestling with anxiety, struggling to concentrate, he said, all right, first of all, ask yourself, what's the worst that could possibly happen? And sometimes I know for me that's pretty helpful because we catastrophize in our mind, don't we? He's like, just ask yourself, be realistic for a second. Ask yourself, what's the worst that could possibly happen? And then he said this, all right, then be prepared to accept the worst. It's like, all right, I accept that. That might happen. But then he also said, number three on his list, try to improve on the worst. And then his fourth thing was, remind yourself of the exorbitant price you can pay for worry in terms of your health. Those were four things he said that helped him not to stay overly anxious. Ask yourself, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Prepare yourself to accept that. Try to improve upon it, but also remind yourself of the exorbitant price you could pay in terms of your health. If you, just, if you just consume yourself with worry. And I think that's all great advice, and I try to implement these practices in my own life, but as a believer in Christ, I also know this. The greatest antidote to worry is never actually going to be found in what I do. You know, there's useful things I can do, just as daily habits or practices, they're certainly more useful than worrying, But the greatest antidote isn't actually found in what I do. It's actually found in what Jesus has done and is doing for me. When Jesus took on flesh, 
When Jesus walked upon this earth, his mission was to restore what man had broken. And what we're seeing in Jesus' ministry, what we're seeing in his earthly life, is God becoming a perfect man to right the wrongs of imperfect men. So man rebelled, and Jesus demonstrated perfect obedience to the Father. Man accepted deceitful counsel that took his mind in unhealthy places, so Jesus demonstrated confidence in God's Word. Man was being blinded by Satan, so Jesus opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Man was living in the fear of death, so Jesus defeated death by directly experiencing it and then rising from it. Every calamity that mankind has brought upon himself, Jesus came to overcome. In him, our lives, our futures, our hopes, our sense of purpose, it all finds restoration in him, in what he has done, not by the works of our hands, but through what he has accomplished on our behalf. And because Jesus holds those who trust in him securely in his hand, Scripture reveals to us we don't actually need to fear for the future. We don't have to walk around constantly focused on what-ifs. I'm telling you, most of those things aren't even going to happen, and the ones that do, you're going to be strong enough to face it because you're going to have strength that goes beyond you. It's not from you. It's from Him. And He won't allow you to walk through those things alone. He will walk through them with you. We don't even need to fear our present-day trials because He's promised to never abandon us in the midst of them. So that means that in Christ, even the bad news that we once feared can now become a new opportunity for Him to demonstrate His power and His perfect plan, and so we can approach each day with confidence in Him and confidence in His goodness, knowing that He works all things out together for for His glory and for our good. One more scripture I want to share with us as we finish up, and that's this. In Psalm 94, 19, the psalmist says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Is that not what Christ does for us? Aren't you glad that through Christ you have been blessed with a perspective that allows you not to get trapped in your circumstances? but to actually see beyond them, when those circumstances start to become something that it feels like, that's the only thing I can see right now. And then Christ opens up our eyes to see beyond them, and we're like, oh, wait, there's more to the story. It all resolves. It all works out. He's using this for my good. This will strengthen my faith. This will help somebody else. This will bring him glory. Through Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of bad news. And in fact, what does the gospel mean? Even the word, what does it mean? Good news. It's good news. We've been given good news through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to look at your word together today. And thank you for the fact that Just as you revealed to us in Psalm 112, we don't need to fear bad news. We don't need to look toward the future and be overly consumed with what-if scenarios and all sorts of things that can spark anxiety in our minds and our lives. And Lord, thank you for telling us that 
Thank you for revealing that to us in your word, because naturally speaking, it can be very, very easy for our minds to be, just become consumed with things that are unhealthy and unwise and unhelpful and not even realistic and not logical and not part of your sovereign plan, and we just get all wrapped up in stuff that you can see from the perspective of eternity is a waste of time and a waste of energy. Because most of the things we're worrying about aren't going to happen. And the things that do, you're here with us in the midst of it. And your strength is sufficient in the midst of our weakness. You are present with us. You have not abandoned us. You will make us strong in ways that we don't currently realize is possible. I think for many of the trials we go through, you'll actually even help us to go through these things with a little bit of a smile on our face. Because we'll see your hand in it. We'll acknowledge that it's hard, and yet at the same time we'll be able to say, yeah, but you've got something cooking. You're working something out. There's something that's going to come from this that's going to be something I will praise you for for eternity. So, Lord, thank you in advance for what you're teaching us in our present difficulties or trials or seasons that stretch us, and thank you for what you'll teach us going forward and what you'll accomplish for our good, for the good of others, and for your glory. And, Lord, I know that one of the things that I've really been thinking about a lot lately is the fact that when I look back over my life, I thank you frequently for some of the trials that I've gone through and what you've taught me in the midst of those things. Lord, I pray that in this season that you would develop that further and that you'd help me to thank you even before I see those things resolve. When I'm still in the, the hardest parts of those trials, I pray that you'd help my faith to mature, to be to a spot where I could say thank you in the midst of it, not just when it, once it's complete, not just once it's resolved. So thank you in the midst of it, Lord. But Lord, we're just so grateful for the things that you teach us from your word, and we're so grateful, Lord, for your presence with us today. As we approach this day and this week and the rest of our lives, we pray that we would do so without fear, because you've got us securely in your hand, and we truly believe that, Lord. We love you. We thank you for the good news of your gospel that our hearts are able to meditate on and chew on and really just think about today and every day. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. Hi, I'm Beckett Cook, host of The Beckett Cook Show. I lived as a gay man in Hollywood for many, many years until I had a radical encounter with Jesus 13 years ago. Since then, I've gotten my master's degree in seminary and published a book called A Change of Affection. On my podcast, The Becca Cook Show, I sit down with fascinating Christian scholars and thinkers to address the lies of the culture and bring the biblical truth to bear on those lies. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for The Becca Cook Show on your favorite podcasting platform.